This morning, we are going to continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. So please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. If you've been with us in this series, um, you know that one of Matthew's primary themes is this idea that Jesus is king, um, that he takes great pains in this gospel to show that Jesus Christ indeed is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, that the king and the kingdom that were foretold in the Old Testament, this is being fulfilled in this person of Jesus. And you know, I don't know if you had this experience as a Christian, but when you come to see something about yourself that you hadn't seen before, in other words, some sort of struggle or some sort of sin, and you might have thought, you know, at this point in my life, I might have struggled with X, but at this point in my life, I realize I really struggle with X. I really struggle with anxiety. I really struggle with anger, whatever it happens to be. And once God shows that to you, it shows up in everything, doesn't it? You, you, you can't help but see it. It's so prominent. And that's the way the theme of kingship is when it comes to Matthew. When you start to, to just kind of have it as a category, it appears everywhere. Matthew starts by telling us that Jesus has the genealogy of a king. He comes straight from the line of King David. He has magi coming from other countries to worship him as king. He has the, one of the most powerful kings in the world, King Herod, trying to kill him. So one king trying to kill another king. We saw two weeks ago at his baptism that what we have here is, a no, is nothing less than the coronation of the king, right? And then last week, Jesus was led into the wilderness, and it's where he sort of established his bona fides. Does he have the credentials? Will he be able to represent us? But the passage today, what we're going to see is the kingdom has finally arrived. In many ways, this passage is a real pivot point, fulcrum at this point in our study through the gospel of Matthew, because everything that's happened prior to this has sort of been in preparation for the grand opening where the king is presented. It's like when you go to New York City and you are wanting to see a show and you get your reservations and you get your hotel and you figure out your transportation and you find your tickets and which cost $8,000 and are still in the back row, right? And the lights go down and the curtains open. There's just that sense of anticipation, isn't there? That's what we have here in Matthew chapter 4. Finally, right, Jesus begins his public ministry. Finally, the kingdom has arrived. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. It's a short little passage, but full of so much. And so if you can, I'll invite you to stand as we read God's word together. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when he, that means Jesus, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness 
have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Father, that's the cry of our heart, that your kingdom would come. Lord, we look at the brokenness around us, our world, our culture. Lord, we look at our own lives, look at our own hearts. And Lord, rightly understood, these lead us to cry out, come Lord Jesus, come. Please establish your rule. Please establish your reign in our hearts and lives. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. And so we ask now that you would open up your word through the power of your spirit. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. We're not just doing alliteration this morning. We're doing double alliteration, all right? So we're going to talk about the kingdom. And there's three things we want to say about the kingdom this morning. First of all, we're going to look at the condition of the kingdom when Jesus came. Secondly, the coming of the kingdom. And finally, the call of the kingdom. All right, so here we go. The condition of the kingdom. If you look at verses 11, 12, 11 was from last week. Remember, there were no chapter divisions, verse divisions when Matthew wrote this. Those only happened later to help us reference God's word. See if you can sort of pick up the, the, the line of the story here. Verse 11, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So this past Christmas when we had all of our kids um, home all together, someone had the bright idea, let's watch some family movies, right? And, and we are um, technologically constipated in our house. So we have not yet transferred all of our old VHS and eight millimeter and whatever, the Pruder films. We haven't transferred all this yet over into digital media. So we have to stick the tape in, right? You know what I'm talking about? And rewind it physically. And what's interesting about watching home videos is that you're the way they were filmed is not the way that you're watching them. Sometimes, you, like when you film things, you're, you, you, you film a scene, and then it might be a year or two years, six months until you, until you film the next. And so here we are, we're, we're watching the these home movies, there's a scene like where the kids are all toddlers, and it's so precious, and all that sort of things. And the next thing you know, they're going to their first day of school. And you look around, it's like, why is everybody weeping right now, right? Okay, we're all, we're all in tears. And it's because we've skipped over this amount. And, and, and even though you can't see it, this is kind of what's happening in Matthew chapter 4 here. There is a gap between verse 11 and verse 12. And it's not obvious, okay, but, but, but when you put all four Gospels together, this is sort of what you have. And this, is, this is important because it's going to help us understand What's happening here? When, when you look at all four Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you come to understand that Jesus ministered for about three years publicly, and that these 
they, these three years were divided into kind of three phases or three epics. First of all, there was a year of preparation. This is sort of Jesus behind the scenes. Okay? There was a year of popularity, and then there was a year of opposition. And this year of preparation, we mainly see in the Gospel of John. And it's here that after Jesus' baptism, Jesus is sort of clandestinely, if that's a word, going about doing things here and there. He does the, he does the wedding feast in Cana, turns the water into wine. He visits with the woman at the well in Samaria. He has this night conversation with Nicodemus. But it's not until the second year of his ministry, the year of popularity, that he goes public. That, that he is sort of full on out there, loud and proud, ministering publicly in Galilee. And this is where Matthew picks up the story. Now, we don't have time to go into why does one scripture writer include this, another not do that. But, but there's an important reason, I think, that Matthew begins in Galilee, in his second year of ministry. And let's look back at the text. It tells us that, that Jesus was ministering in Judea. He, he, he was been baptized by John. Then you have this gap of a year. Then it says he goes to Galilee. Why does Jesus go to Galilee? Why does Matthew pick up the story from there? Well, there's, there's a couple things happening here. Number one, it tells us, first of all, that John the Baptist, who we affectionately refer to as JTB here, right? You down with JTB, right? Okay, you know me. So JTB, John the Baptist, was arrested in Judea near Jerusalem. Remember, that Jesus' most popular times of public ministry were all in the north in Galilee. Most of his opposition came in the south in Jerusalem. That's where he was murdered. That's where he was crucified. Apparently, you know, we understand later in Matthew why John the Baptist had been arrested. John the Baptist had gone from preaching to meddling. He had called out Herod Antipas, for the adulterous relationship that Herod was having with his brother's daughter. I know, don't think about it too long, right? And he got arrested, thrown into jail. And it tells us it was that moment when Jesus left Judah, Judea, Jerusalem, the southern area. And the reason he, he left, please understand, it's not because he was afraid of getting arrested, it was not because he was afraid of dying. We know from later in Matthew, Jesus goes right back to Jerusalem precisely because he knows he's going to be arrested and die. That's part of his mission. But he goes, he leaves this time because it wasn't his time. One of the things that we see in the Gospel of John repeatedly is John will often tell us it was not yet Jesus' hour. It wasn't his time. And Jesus would often be confronted with hostility and persecution and people try to kill him. It would always say, but it was not his time. It was not his time. It wasn't until he goes back to Jerusalem, finally, that John tells us it's his time. Now is the time. This isn't the point of this message, but let me just simply say this. When we see Jesus in his ministry, he is absolutely sovereignly in control from start to finish. Jesus makes something very clear. He says, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down and take it up of my own accord. Jesus is never surprised. He's never ambushed. He's never taken off guard. 
He is in complete and total control of his life from start to finish in his ministry. And, and let me just say, that should be a real comfort for us. That should be a real encouragement for us that Jesus was in complete control of his life. He's in complete control of yours and your families and the people that you love and the people that you are connected to. So the first reason Jesus goes up to Galilee is that it's not yet his time. Right, so so that, that's the first thing. Secondly, it tells us, and this is interesting, he doesn't launch his ministry from Nazareth. Remember, Nazareth was his hometown. A lot of times, guys will come out of seminary and they want to go plant a church in their hometown. And can I just say something? It oftentimes does not work, right? Because sometimes it's hard for people to remember, you know, this guy who's planting this church was also the guy who was doing really immature, stupid things when he was a little boy, right? It's hard to make that transition. Well, in Jesus's case, Luke 4 tells us why he doesn't make Nazareth his home base. It's because when he showed up to visit, they asked him to preach the text that Sunday in the synagogue, and they were so incensed at him, they tried to throw the hometown boy off the cliff. See, the prophet has no honor in his own country. So instead... He goes down to Capernaum, and he sets up shop in Capernaum. And if you've ever been to Israel, we've, did, we've done an Israel trip um, as a church. We'd, I'd love to do another one in a few years. It's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful setting. It's right on the water. It's super strategic. All that are reasons Jesus relocated there. However, it's, they're, they're not the reasons, but they're not the primary reason. The primary reason Jesus goes to Galilee. The primary reason he uses that as his launching off point into his public ministry is found in verse 14. Let's read it together. It says, now, in verse 13, in leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, or if you're from East Tennessee, Naphtali. All right, that's also allowed, all right? Verse 14, so that, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Matthew says the reason Jesus went to Galilee, it was to fulfill a prophecy that Isaiah had made 700 years before. And, and Matthew then proceeds to quote from his favorite Old Testament book, which is Isaiah. And he quotes from Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. And it's interesting, this is a text, is it not, that we read every Advent season. And here is what Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 says that Matthew quotes. It says, people living in darkness have seen a great light. Now, why in the world would Matthew go back to a text written 700 years before and quote that and say, this is, this is all about the mission of Jesus? Now, remember this. Zebulun and Naphtali were in the northern kingdom of Israel. So the southern kingdom was Judah. That's where Jerusalem was. But the northern kingdom 
the other tribes, 11 tribes, were in the northern part of Israel. And it was the northern tribes that were taken into exile first. The king of Assyria came and invaded Israel and deported all of the people or most of the people in the northern kingdom. That happened in 722. And Isaiah, here's what Isaiah says about that. Isaiah 9.1. In the former time, he brought contempt into, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So, so what was the contempt here? What, what curse came down upon the northern kingdom? Listen to what 2 Kings 15, 29 says. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pilsir, king of Assyria, came and captured Eon, Abel-Beth-Makkah, Jeona, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, ready, and Galilee. All the land of Naphtali, he carried the people captive to Assyria. This was ground zero. Galilee was ground zero. This is, this is where it happened. This is where Assyria invaded. This is where they set up shop. This is where they wrenched moms um, and babies away from one another, husbands and wives, deported them all off to gosh knows who knows where for what um, terrible fate. But not only that, there was a double dose of shame for Galilee. A double dose. 2 Kings 17. Not only did Assyria pull Israelites out, but look what they did. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuta, Ava, Hamath, and Sephriam, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear Lord, do you, do you see what's happened here 700 years ago before Matthew is writing? The tribes of Israel in the northern kingdom, this very land that Jesus returns to, to inaugurate his public ministry, was a byword. It was a scourge. This was a place of great spiritual darkness. Great spiritual pain. Not only had a bunch of Israelites been taken into captivity, never to be seen again, but they brought in the blasted Gentiles to repopulate the area. This is why one of the reasons Samaritans were so despised. They were, they were an inbreed of Samarians, of, of, of Gentile and Jewish blood. And this was such a point of shame for Israel. It was, a, it was like... It was like the dark side of the force descends over that place. And it's been that way for 700 years. And the way that Isaiah describes the kingdom of God at that time is that it was darkness. It was like the shadow of death had passed over it. It was Ichabod. What, was it? what is Ichabod? It was the name given to one of Eli's Grandsons, it literally means the glory of the Lord has departed. Parents, don't do that to your child. Can I just say that? Okay. Don't, don't name them Ichabod or, or, or a name that represents something horrific. But, but the, the child's name was the glory of the Lord has departed because it was such a terrible word. Do you see now why and what significance it has for Jesus to return to Galilee 
He said, this is ground zero. This is, this is the darkest place in Israel. And I'm going to set up shop right here in this place of great spiritual darkness. And I am going to begin a new work of grace. Because let me just ask you something before we leave this point. Do you have a Zebulun or Nephtali in your life? Is, it, is there a place in your life that's Samaria? It's a place of shame, of darkness, embarrassment. Do you feel like there, there, there's some, something going on in your heart or your life or your marriage or with your kids or a besetting sin that's just sort of Ichabod? The glory of the Lord has departed I feel like I'm living with this sort of curse on top of me. There is, there is a shadow that's descended over me. Well, that's Israel. That's us. Because I don't ask if, you know, I, I, don't, I don't ask you if you have a, a, a Zebulun and Nephtali in your life. We all do. It's just a matter of what it is. And how we make sense of it and what, it, what our relationship to it is. And now the stage is set where, where the kingdom is on the brink. But Jesus now appears on the scene. And let's look at verse 16. The coming of the kingdom. A new work. Look at verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow on, of death, on them a light has dawned. Isaiah says this is not just a light that has come with Christ. It is a great light. Now, just, to, just so you know, just so we can have a transparent, open, honest relationship going forward, you need to know that I am an Apple guy. I don't mean fruit, although I do like apples. I mean, technologically, I am an apple guy. Everybody tracking with me? And if you feel differently about that, may God show you the error of your ways at some point. But I'm an apple guy. Let me just say this. The greatest thing, I have an apple watch. The greatest thing about this apple watch is that it helps me find my phone no less than a dozen times a day. It's its greatest feature. Susan will hear it go off and she'll say, again, again. The phone's in your pocket. Can we come on? Can, can we not? Now, now, the greatest thing about finding my phone, though, is, again, this little accessory flashlight that comes with it. Okay? I'm not sure how civilization even functioned before this happened, right? So, so used to in the old days, right, whatever that means, if you lost something, something rolled under the bed or you dropped something in the middle of the night, I mean, it was big trouble, right? I mean, if you happen to be one of those nerds who had like a little pocket pen calculator thing, light to shine, then good for you. But for the rest of us mortals, right, we didn't have that. So what is the only way to get light into a dark space? You flip them all on. And we all know there is nothing more shocking, disorienting, blinding than to go from sheer darkness to sheer light. It's, it's like wearing those night vision goggles you see in the, in the movies, and the Navy SEALs are always wearing them, and somebody turns the lights on, and what do they do? They, 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 they're, they're blinded by it. Guys, that's the nature of the word here. This is not just a light that has shone in Galilee. 
This is a great light. To pull for some Tolkien imagery, this is trolls exposed to sunlight. This is the Nazgul being lit up by Gandalf's staff. You get the idea, right? But understand, it's, it's not the people who are being blinded. It's, it's not us who are, who, are, who are being exposed. It's the darkness. The light is so penetrating. The light is so powerful that the darkness is really being driven back. Now, what is this light? What is this light? Well, Jesus tells us it's the, it's the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes, and you'll see this in the Gospels, you'll see it in Matthew, sometimes it's, it's referred to as the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes it's just the kingdom it's, it's, a, it's a huge concept, and, and from this point forward, every time you come across this in, in Matthew's gospel, you're going to look at it, I believe, hopefully, in an entirely different way. So let me just spend a couple of minutes explaining, I think, what Jesus means by the kingdom, what Matthew means by the kingdom. When God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, mankind was in complete alignment with the kingdom of God. You know how we pray, um, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, in the garden, God's will was done in every single way. Adam and Eve had perfect worship with God, unhindered, unmediated. They worked. They were under the authority of God's rule and reign. What they wanted to do and what they should do coincided and were one and the same thing. They were caretakers in every way in the garden. There was perfect shalom. They were experiencing, walking, living in the kingdom of God. Until, and you know the rest of the story. As sin enters the world, rebellion under Satan's temptation Darkness, the dark side of the horse, literally descends over the earth. Man and earth are now at enmity with God in every way. The world is Ichabod. The glory of the Lord is departed. And now, man is attempting to build his own kingdom. The kingdom of self, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of his own person. He's building his own cities. He's wanting to reign. He's wanting to be his own boss. And mankind is now torn asunder from God's kingdom. God's darkness reigns on planet earth. But the Old Testament is the story of how once this darkness entered the world, God does not remain passive. God does not remain silent. God gets to work. And he begins to slowly but surely orchestrate a plan to permanently dispel the darkness. And that's what the Old Testament is all about. The prophets are pointing to the time where a new king is coming. He's going to be even better than King David because in case you've forgotten this, even the greatest king in the history of Israel's history was a failed king on so many levels. But God said, I'm going to raise up a perfect king. I'm going to raise up a Messiah king. And he is going to come, 
and he is, and he is going to be a great light. This is going to be someone who's going to bring shalom. They're going to reestablish the kingdom of God. They are going to make what is wrong right. They're going to reestablish shalom. And here's what Jesus says. His first little sermon. What does he say, verse 12? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. What you've been waiting for, what you've been hoping for, what you've been praying for is finally here. The king has come. Light is breaking into the darkness, into our broken, sinful world, and he is the light. Now, understand something. We have to, keep, we have to always keep in mind that this kingdom is both already and it's not yet. The final fulfillment of this kingdom comes at Jesus' second coming. This is when everything will be made right for eternity. But that doesn't mean that what's happening right now doesn't matter. It matters so much because this earth and our time here is a sign that God's kingdom is marching forward. In fact, you could say that the rest of the gospel of Matthew is Matthew showing us how the kingdom is breaking forth. See, Matthew, when we read about the miracles and the feedings and the teachings, you're going to come to see them in a whole new way. These aren't just little random moralisms that Matthew drops in here here or there. These are examples, pictures, stories of how the darkness is being dispelled. People who are blind are able to see. People who are lame are now able to walk. People who are demon-possessed, demons are driven out. Sickness is pushed back. Darkness is overcome. Do you you see what's happening here in the Gospel of Matthew? Everything is a testimony to the fact that God's kingdom, which was long awaited for, has finally arrived in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But here's, you know there's always a catch, right? It's not a catch. You see, there were many, and there's many here maybe, many in our culture, many in our evangelical churches who think about God's kingdom principally in political terms, right? Pastor Paul, if, if, if God, if, if somebody would just show up and fix this mess, right? This mess of a culture, this mess of a nation, this mess of a world. Can't you see what's happening? Doesn't it get you angry? We just need like somebody to come and like clear the tables, right? We need somebody to come and and bring judgment upon the nations. And Jesus says, not yet. I've got a more principled primary work to do, and it's not the work out there. It's the work right here. That's where my kingdom has to establish itself first. See, this is not going to be a kingdom that's top down. This is going to be a kingdom that starts in your heart and in my heart. Guys, let's be honest. That can be a painful process, right? It's a painful process when we think the solution is out there somewhere and God says, I've got that under control. Don't you worry about that. What I'm doing is putting my 
winnowing fork to work in your own soul, in your own heart. You see, there's darkness there I want to dispel. There, there, there's darkness I want to beat back by my grace and my mercy through my son, Jesus Christ. Which is why this first sermon of Jesus's has basically one word of response. There is a call that God makes to every one of us in relationship to his kingdom. Please understand this. The gospel of Matthew is not meant to be studied from a distance. It's not meant to be evaluated at a, at a sort of an academic level. It's meant to press upon us this idea that God's kingdom is here. Jesus has come. It's not something we can remain neutral about any longer. If it's true, and it is, it changes everything. Which brings us to our last point, the call of the kingdom. Verse 17 and you may say, Pastor Paul, we wish your sermons were about as long as Jesus' sermons, okay? Matthew was selective, okay? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because if you were going to boil down the most basic response that God requires from every human being on the face of the earth in light of his coming kingdom. What, what, what would that response be? How would we encapsulate it? How, do, how would we summarize it? Matthew's done that for us. It's, it's contained in this one little loaded word, repent. Now that's a religious word. It has a lot of religious baggage attached to it. So let me try to just for a minute or two unpack this for us. Because it's, it's a strong word. It's also a military word. It, it means to reverse course. It means to do an about face. Our problem sometimes with repentance is that we think of it too woodenly, too rigidly. In other words, I have trouble telling the truth. I need to repent of that. I need to stop lying. I need to start telling the truth. I've repented. And, and there, that is an aspect of repentance, Right? There's an aspect of, of repentance that says, I'm not doing the right thing. I want to do the right thing. The, 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 and, and that's, it's not that that's untrue. It's just incomplete. See, it's possible to exist at a very surface level obedience to the Ten Commandments. I haven't slept with anybody. I'm generally honoring I only worship one God. I don't worship idols. I mean, there's a way to kind of articulate our obedience in those sort of terms, but have a very corrupt heart. To have a very unaffected heart to the gospel. That's, that was the issue with the Pharisees, right? Their, their, their righteousness was only skin deep. This word has a, has a much larger, deeper meaning. I, I want to I want to impress this upon you. To repent means to reorient every aspect of one's being. It means to reshuffle every part of your life. It means that there is not one area of your life that is not impacted by this call 
to orient your life to the kingdom. The kingdom of God, God's rule and reign, is to permeate into every nook and cranny and crevice of your life. This is an all-encompassing word. It's a total word. A lot of times we like to think about our life as, as sort of spiritual, secular distinctions. Well, Pastor Paul, I've got the spiritual areas of my life. That's like my quiet time and when I go to church and when I go to community group and those kind of things. But, but then there are the secular areas of my life, like my hobbies and what I do with my money and my time and what happens at work and those sort of things. Guys, the call of the kingdom does not discriminate. There's not one aspect of our life, as one theologian said, that Jesus Christ does not look at and say, that belongs to me. Guys, that's repentance. Repentance is all-encompassing. It means to reorient every aspect of our being. Now, it's interesting. It says here that Jesus, it says that Jesus came preaching, okay, it does not say that Jesus came sharing or Jesus came communicating or even that Jesus came inviting. It does not say that Jesus came being winsome. It doesn't even say that Jesus came teaching, although teaching's important. This was not an invitation. This was a command. This was an urgent call to action. What Jesus is saying is that in light of this coming of the kingdom of God, everything has changed. What will you do? I went online. I know this is hard to believe, but I found there, I looked up, how many movies are there about an asteroid hurtling toward Earth and sending the Earth into extinction? How many? There's 14, okay? And I did what any normal person would do. I sat and watched all 14 of those. But no, I did not do that. But I, but I did find the one I was looking for, Deep Impact made about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, this asteroid is hurtling towards Earth and everyone knows it's an extinction level event, right? They know where it's gonna land, what its impact's gonna be, and this is gonna be literally one of those, hundreds of millions of people are gonna die. And what the movie is about, okay, is what everybody is doing in response to this. And so you see one little group of course, they're the ones that get saved. They have the 180 IQ. They have the pencil calculator, all that sort of stuff, right? They get saved. Everybody else is, is destined to perish. And everybody's galvanized to do something. People who, who the select few who are being saved are, 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 are doing that. Those who know they're going to die, they're trying to get their affairs in order. They're trying to see if they can help their family members. You have, you have families going to their old vacation spots in reliving the moments. They, you have people reconciling with one another. The whole point is that there's not one person that they show that's not doing anything. You see, because the end has come, everyone is compelled to do something. See, that's precisely the situation that we have with the coming of the kingdom. It's here. And Jesus says, repent, orient, change. And what we have in the gospel of Matthew, in many ways, is on display. What does that look like for us? See, when you understand about this coming of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount is going to take on a whole new flavor for you. 
See, the Sermon on the Mount is not just about how to manage your life and do better and those sorts of things. This is to mark the people of the kingdom. This is, this, this is what distinguishes us. This is who we are called to be. Let me say, well, Pastor Paul, all that's great. But how do I participate in this? What does that mean for me? What it doesn't mean, you know, it's interesting. It doesn't mean that you have to change the world. Most of us won't. But you know, husbands, when you love your wife as Christ loved the church, according to Ephesians 5, God's kingdom is established. When you are hospitable to your neighbor and you give generously and open your lives, God's kingdom is established. When you say, you know what, at work, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be distinctive here. Uh, by who I am at school, who I am with my friends, I, I'm... I want to bring the light of the gospel into this situation. When that happens, God's kingdom is present. Moms, when you're home with those little ones and you were just faithfully raising them and it seems so mundane and like you could be doing so many more bigger and better things, guess what? God's kingdom is established. God builds his rule and his reign. See, King Jesus has come proclaiming the kingdom. And now everything changes. What needs to change for you? What needs to change for you? As you think about this urgency, this fact that Jesus has come and he is the light of the world, what needs to change for you? What needs to be reoriented to your life, knowing that whatever we vest ourselves in that has not, does not have eternal significance is going to fade. It's going to fall away. See, crisis has such a way, does it not, of bringing into sharp relief our most important priorities, and that's what the kingdom of God does. One last thing and we'll be done. There, there, there is a problem, right? And, and the problem is that the, kings are, the king is coming, the king is here, but his subjects are in rebellion. See, the coming of the king is not automatically good news to everyone if you are at odd or at enmity with the king. See, if, the, if, you're, not, if you're not on the same page as the king, that's not good news. But here is what is astounding about the kingdom of God. Here's what is astounding about the gospel. That Jesus Christ has come to rule and reign. But before that, he's come to lay down his very life for his rebellious subjects. Not only is God coming to establish who he is, his power, his authority, his glory... He's also coming with the recognition that you and I would be utterly consumed by that. Apart from his grace and mercy, the kingdom of God coming is not good news at all, which is why the king who came to rule had to be the king who first came to die. That no other world religion, no other approach, philosophy has, has ever heard of such a thing, right? Right? 
that the most important person, the most powerful person, becomes the weakest, becomes the lowliest, and says, I've come to establish my kingdom, and I want you to be a part of it. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay my life down for you. Because as we come to the table this morning, we're, we're doing it with sort of two things in mind, two things in our hands. One, we're saying, I am here to publicly identify with King Jesus. That's why we get out of our seats. That's why we come forward. It's a public proclamation. We're identifying ourselves with Christ. We're saying, I'm flying under the banner of King Jesus. But as we take that bread and we drink that cup, we're saying, and I'm trusting in this king's death for me, that he laid down his life so that I could reign with him forever. I'm going to ask you to bow your head just for a moment. I ask you to prepare your hearts to reflect upon this message, this passage, as we prepare to come to take the elements. I'm going to ask our, our leaders to come forward, prepare to serve.